Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey. Just so you know, this conversation gets a little intense, so we've decided to include a content warning. You can find out more detail in our show notes. Hi, I'm Susan Kalman, and welcome back to Susan Kalman's Mrs. Brightside. Thanks for downloading the show. I thought that by the time I got to Edinburgh, I'd be all fixed. You know, oh, oh I'll be ready to write a show. This show's about mental health. My show's called Phoenix from the Flames. My show is about me coming back to stand-up and coming back to uh, Edinburgh and coming back to being like, yeah, I'm back. I'm, my, my brain is working again and all this. And the whole process of writing the show has been absolutely... I've said I've, I'm, I'm so open on stage, I feel like I could burst into tears at any point. Last year, I spoke to eight people about their tricksy mental health, and this year, I'll be chatting to eight more. Because, because this is the first time I've ever talked about the voices in my head that tell me to do bad things. And so I am finding it really difficult because these are the deepest, darkest thoughts in my head. I've got Waldorf and Statler. Right. <laughs> who say, you're shit. That's my voices. They're the Muppets who just constantly tell me, what do you think of it so far? Rubbish. Right. It's my voices. I'm doing this because I want people to be more open about their mental health and I know sometimes it can be difficult to define what that means. So we're going to be having a frank and open discussion, no parameters, no written questions, no definitions and no pop psychology. It's important for you to know that these are not therapy sessions. I am not a qualified psychiatrist, no matter how much casualty I've watched. They're just honest conversations about what we think and feel about our own heads. In this episode, I'm talking to the glorious Nick Helm. I've known Nick a while. Um, he was in my sitcom, Sisters, that was on Radio 4. I wrote a part where we were, we were going out together in my head. In real life, we have never kissed. Um, and it's a fascinating chat. Uh, Nick's show this year in 2019 at the Fringe is about depression and mental health. And it's a, an incredible chat about a real force of nature who's also very gentle. That's the thing about Nick. Um, and I really hope you enjoy it because he's a, he's a really interesting, gorgeous man. Yeah, we're recording now, Nick. Oh, right, okay. In this... What? In this incredibly <coughs> comfortable, sweaty Porsche cabin. Isn't it lovely? Is it, do you know, I don't think I, I... Well, actually, I have recorded in worse places than this, I suspect. This is not bad, it's clean. I, I mean, you're the third person to apologise to me, and uh, I think this is the cleanest place I've been in the whole of Edinburgh. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, we are at the Fringe, just uh, for people listening. There is some bleed through from the big purple tent, blue tent. There is currently a panel show being recorded with sporadic laughter. So it's not that Nick and I have a constant soundtrack of laughter that follows us round. It's just What natural. are they recording? What is it? Um, it's a BBC Scotland show called Breaking the News. It's a topical news show. Comedy. Comedy. 
Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. So that's what's happening. So they're combining news and comedy now. It's, I don't think it'll work, personally. I've oh. never heard it before. That's interesting. Um, Nick Helm. Yes, Susan Cameron. Um I sometimes forget to start these podcasts in a normal fashion. Oh. <laughs> um, for people who don't know who you are, and if they don't, they're an idiot, Nick. There's could a lot you, of idiots. Could you, describe, <laughs> could you describe for the listening public who you are and what you do? My name is uh, Nick Helm, and I am a stand-up comedian. And question mark? I haven't done it so much. I haven't done it in quite in a while. I haven't. I haven't done stand-up for a year and a half, and I haven't done Edinburgh a full run in Edinburgh for six years. Mm-hmm. So, because I've been doing some acting and a bit of presenting and stuff like that, so so I don't know. I think I'm still a stand-up comedian. And so you're back at the Fringe just now doing a stand-up show. How has that felt after a break, coming back to do stand-up? Um, it was... Uh, yeah, it was, it was weird, because I did a tour a couple of years ago, so really the process of writing material isn't different. But, um, but I, I tend to... If I, if, when, I was a, when I did the tour, I did a very stripped-down show, so it was just me, like, talking for an hour. And uh, my Edinburgh shows tend to have kind of like a bit more production value because you're in one venue for the entire month. So, um, but the preview process is going to like rooms above pubs with just sort of like a handful of notes and then just doing your notes. So, and it only really comes together the first couple of days in Edinburgh. So that was a bit of like a... um, yeah, it sort of yeah, it came back to me <laughs> about like how disorganised I am uh, at the beginning of the festival. It takes about four days for me to sort of like get into the show. Something about the reason the fringe is the fringe specifically is wonderful is people might not like <clears throat> what you do, but you have the opportunity to do it. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, you can book a room, well, you, and you could have that. You could do the the biggest piece of shit in the world if you wanted to, but you can do it. No one stops you from doing it. Yeah, it's it's your thing. You've got complete creative control over it. And also, I do think that it is possible to find an audience in Edinburgh. Uh, but also, um, I did. The, I'm doing two shows. So my first show is my stand-up show, where I'm sort of like uh, dipping my toe back into stand-up and talking about mental health stuff and. Um, and then my second show is a musical that I wrote in 2008 <laughs> um, that nobody came to see. <laughs> and, uh, and I redid it uh, last year for a 10th anniversary for Halloween and it cost so much money. <laughs> I was just like, oh, well, I'll try and claw some of the money back by doing uh, Edinburgh and you know, using whatever name I have to uh, get people to see this musical. Because uh, we're doing a soundtrack album for that as well, and um, yeah, and uh, I'm just I'm really I'm really enjoying it. Uh, but it's kind of like one of those things where it didn't have. I think it made fifth, like, and I said it, and it sounds like a joke. But I think that out of all of the shows that I did, I did my first show in 2000. I wrote my first show in 2001, which wasn't stand up. By the time I got to 2008, none of my shows had ever made any money. We never got any audiences for it. I just no. I just loved doing it, and mm-hmm. then when, in 2008, I think you stink uh, made 50 quid. <laughs> so I think we all bought like a bottle of whiskey and <laughs> celebrated. But um, but it's kind of so so doing it now is kind of like um, it's just really lovely. Um, On the last day of the fringe, I always used to buy my audience champagne because I could 
because there was usually about four of them. Right. And I would bring in champagne and we would just sit and have a glass of champagne because he'd come to the last show. Right, yeah. Because there was literally about maybe five or six people in cagoules just staring at me at the underbelly, usually. Yeah. And because uh, it was cold by that point because it's the end of August, so it's really... Autumn, autumn and winter starting, <laughs> yeah. and we would share a, a cheap bottle of champagne together, and it was quite a nice thing. Yeah, that that sounds lovely. I'd, yeah. like to, I'd like to say I can't do that now because I fill such large theatres now. <laughs> Your show this year, though, um, uh, and and people report it as if it's a really big thing. This is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Nick Helm does a show about mental health mm. headline. Tell me about, first of all, tell me about the show and what that means, because that means nothing. Nick Helm does a show about mental health. What does it, what is the show about? Every single show I've ever written has been about depression. And like even uh, 2001, my first show was a sketch show that I wrote called Air Freshener. That was about depression. My, um, and then I got, and then in 1998 or 1997, we had to do like an A-level individual skill where we had to kind of like write, you know, we could do anything we wanted. I think you had to pick three things, three disciplines. So I did acting, directing and set design. And, um, and that was about mental health. And then Air Freshness sort of like spun out from that. And, you know, mental health is sort of a buzzword that everyone seems to be using at the moment. And, and it feels a little bit like, um... Oh, where have you been for the, you know, and people are reporting about me. Oh, he's talking about depression. And it's just like every single, and these are from people that have followed my career, you yeah. know, reviewers that have, and journalists. And you go, everything that I've ever written has been about that. I think maybe the slant is slightly different. I know that when I did Live at the Apollo, um, uh, the Sun wrote an article about the fact that I was making fun of mental health issues and, and depression and I had a couple of comments online saying that, oh, nice one, you're making fun of depression and, and you go, I'm not making fun of it, I'm sort of, um, I suffer from it and so I'm writing jokes about stuff that I have direct uh, experience with, which is within my right. Um, and, uh, and I think that really annoyed me that they were kind of trying to shame me out of being able to talk about something that actually affects me. Mm -hmm. And there are other comedians that you can get, you know, all of your happy vibes out of. And, I'm, and, I, and I try and do something different. And what I try and do is I try and kind of, like, create uplifting uh, shows but that don't go, you know, the direct route of kind of like, oh, isn't everything great? Isn't everything happy? Isn't everything wonderful? And I try and sort of, like, take people on kind of, like, more of, like, an emotional journey. So that by the end, they're kind of like, they feel like they've been through something and they've experienced something and then they can leave kind of like feeling uplifted and that maybe, you know, there is some terrible stuff in the world, but they, they can cope with it. That's sort of what all my shows have been about. This one, I think, I sort of, I think I've improved as a stand-up comedian in, in the last couple of years and I think... Um, I'm more honest and I think I'm less of a character act. Like I think before in the early days it was, it was a very, I had a very, it was never a character act but it was a very strong stage persona. Um, and I could hide behind that and I could talk, sort of talk about stuff that was affecting me in a very abstract way. And now I'm being a lot more um, uh, literal and I'm just sort of like saying this is my actual personal experience. 
And then I'm, and it's interesting because it's sort of like you're mixing in sort of like the persona with kind of like actual genuine heartfelt, mm. this is how I feel. But maybe that's why the the press... I mean, they make their own judgments. I remember the year Bridget Christie won the Edinburgh Comedy Award and they said, um, it's the year feminism has hit the fringe. And I thought, I'm sure Jenny Eclair, when she won the Perry many years ago, would have said feminism hit the fringe. Many years, Sandy Toxvig, who I remember telling me her first half hour was with Graham Norton, however many years ago. Sometimes they decide this is the year of oh, yeah, whatever. Me and Adam Richie's got nominated one year, and Sam Simmons, and everyone was kind of like, oh, it's the year of uh, surreal audience participation, aggressive bullying, kind of like... And you were just kind of like, you've made this up so you can connect stuff. I, I find when I'm writing a show, I'll write, um, this thing will happen to me in uh, January and then something else will happen to me in March and then something else I'll remember happened to me three years ago and uh, they were all like 20 minute routines and then all of a sudden by just putting them next to each other you can make connections to them and then it's a show. Um, and I think that's what I think that's what largely journalists seem to do with it. But do you think because you've, as you're saying, um, it's less of the persona and more of you that they're thinking that this is actually you talking about it, rather than this is Nick Helm, the performer who's been at the Fringe before. Um, I mean, I've only ever known you as the person I've met because because that's it. So I just take you as you are. But on stage. Do you think that they're saying they see your true vulnerability, Nick? <laughs> Sounds like I'm on a daytime chat <coughs> show. I'm just wondering why this show in particular they appear to think is about whatever it is, rather than, as you say, the thread has been through all your other shows. Well, I did a, I did a tour show um, two years ago, which was, again, it's kind of like this is... It's not quite a follow-up because it was so stripped down, but it was kind of like... That was when I was in the midst of having, like, a terrible um, emotional uh, mental breakdown where, basically, I stopped functioning properly and I just needed some time away. And, that, I mean, the reality is I've, I haven't done Edinburgh in six years because I had, um, you know, we were filming Uncle in the summer and, uh, um, and you know, there were a bunch of other TV things that sort of, like, got in the way. I always came up for, like, a day or so. And then last year... Um, I got to Christmas 2017 and um, I just had had like four personally very difficult years in a row and um, and I just got to Christmas and um, I'd done three gigs that I didn't want, that, that I didn't need to do. But I wanted to do, but I didn't need to do them and they were like literally leading up to like the 23rd of December. And I got to the end of them, and um, there was sort of like a very negative experience at one of them. Um, and um, I just sort of like was just like, I don't know why I'm doing this anymore. And so I needed a break. And so I just spent, you know, a year and a half writing treatments for TV and um, and doing some acting with my friend Ramesh. And, um, you know, just sort of like working on my own stuff. And then I didn't come up to Edinburgh at all last year. I went to Sri Lanka. Um, yeah, and I didn't even think about Edinburgh at all. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. And then, and then I, you thought, come back to it. I'm only here for three days this fringe. Um, I do like sweeping visits and I do think a month is too long. 
Yes. And and I've always thought months is too long, but you don't seem to get recognised as a show if you don't do a month. No, because if you do a, if you only do a week, then you're accused of just swooping in for a week. Yeah. I wouldn't mind coming back and just doing a small period of time. Well, I think one of my favourite shows was my was I came and did two weeks of work in progress to uh, for the tour. So I I came up to Edinburgh with like notes, <clears throat> came up with just like handfuls of notes, and on the first second I hated dying on my ass four days in a row, and by the fourth day I'd written a show, and then I spent the rest of the fortnight making it better, and then I went on tour. And it was just like, and I didn't spend months and months writing it. I spent a fortnight writing it, and it was all about how I was feeling and my depression at the time. And it was when I was right in the midst of it all. And then, so yeah, so so I guess a lot of those journalists that we were talking about, they didn't see that tour show, which is a shame because it was one of my best shows. And um, um, and then this show is kind of like me, kind of like doing a return to bells and whistles. So you have kind of like you know costume changes and all of that stuff. And I'm sort of like combining what I learned from that tour show, which is storytelling, uh, with. And I guess that's one of the things that's changed is that I've become more of a storyteller. Whereas uh, my early shows, I would write a couple of gags to link a poem to a song. And actually, when you look when I, when I look back on my earlier shows, like uh, Keep Hold of the Gold was my first big one in 2010. When I look back at that, um, <clears throat> there was about 10 minutes of stand-up in it, and everything else was audience participation and songs and poems. Um, and then the next year, there was maybe about 15 minutes. And then by the time I got to One Man Megamyth, which was my first full run, uh, there was like equal parts stand-up mm. and um, and then that was sort of storytelling. And I guess now it's kind of like, um, it's just really, I'm, I, I enjoy being really honest on stage and just saying, um, you, know, sh- you know, I think there's something um, respectful and uh, I don't want to sound you know, too pretentious. But I think there's something sort of beautiful about just allowing yourself to appear ugly. And um, and I also think that it's sort of like, I think it's more valuable for an audience to see you like that, you know? So, I can agree more. It's one of my, I think one of the, my favourite things doing a show soon with a very tall person. That may surprise you, Nick. I'm doing a show with a very tall person. And I could see them kind of going, are we allowed to, are we allowed to make f- fun of this? And I said, of course you can. You work with what you've been given. Yeah. And I have no problem at all with you making fun of the fact that I am an exceptionally short human being mm-hmm. standing next to a very tall person. How tall are you? Four foot ten. Four foot ten. I'm working with someone that's five foot. Right, and that's a noticeable difference. Yes, it, I mean it is an it's a, a, a very it's a, the person I'm working with is about six foot seven, so this is an an extraordinary situation. Yeah. I, I am one of life's fortunate people, Nick, in that I have had depression as long as I can remember. Mm. You know, I was born with it. Yes, yeah. Um, what's your experience of it? Are you similar, or was it something that sometimes people in teenage years? But for me, I've always been a a fairly sad human being at times. Yeah, I think I'm a very lonely person and um, uh, and I feel like I've always been to... I mean, yeah, I've, I've, I've always been depressed. Um, 
uh, and I didn't know what it was. I was very, you know, and so this is sort of what my show's about. It's kind of like, um, I talk about, you know, I was bullied at school and I've been through a break, well, you know, several breakups and, um, you know, you, you move house when you lose all your friends and you fall out with people. And I think that none of this stuff uh, contributes positively to you, but it's not the cause of the depression. You know, I think one of the things that I'm trying to talk about in my show, if I remember on that day, is that um, it's a really convenient construct that you get in sorts of uh, movies and literature and TV shows, which is um, somebody gets dumped and then they get depression and then they meet someone else and then or they or they you know get the promotion and then all of a sudden they're fixed and um it's just a shorthand for storytelling but depression doesn't work like that and um and i have been in absolutely amazing relationships that um haven't worked out because i've been depressed uh, and not because they've been sick of me and they've given up on me, but basically I've just not been able to function in that sort of uh, relationship. Um, and, and one of the things I say in my show is that <clears throat> depression isn't the same as just being sad, right? Because when you're happy, you can still be depressed, you know? You can still have depression, like, following you around. And, you know, I really love gigging. I think one of the things... I tell you what, I tell you what, this has just sort of occurred to me that I've been thinking about recently. It's just that um, I stopped doing stand up for about a year and a half, and that is when my depression really, really, really kicked in. And I think actually mm. I do identify as a stand up comedian. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like that is part of who I am. I was lost until my first gig in 2006. And when I did my first gig in 2006, I was just like, right, this is what I want to do. I'm rubbish at it but this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I, it was like the first time since, you know, primary school that I started something new and it was that easy to make friends and hmm. I didn't feel alone, you know? And it, well, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I loved all the social side of it. I loved doing stand-up and, you know, getting the ego boost of having a room full of people laugh at you and all of that. But I loved the social side of it where you didn't feel alone and it was like a school, a school year. And then, you know, as you go through the rank, there's a new school year starting the year below you, and then you've got your your year group, and you're all progressing and doing things. And then you get to a point where everyone becomes successful and stops talking to each other, and then <laughs> it becomes really depressing. Um, I, I do think that, I mean, one of the things which I completely associate with, which is a very difficult concept to explain sometimes, is loneliness. Mm. I was so lonely. I was so lonely at school. So lonely. And I think that fear of loneliness has stayed with me for years. Just, and trying to explain to people, and when I wrote Cheer Up Love, and I was trying to explain, I didn't go into great detail in the book, because I used to be a lawyer and I'm aware of defamation laws and I didn't want to be sued. <laughs> but, you know, I was really lonely at school and blah, blah, blah. And I met people I was at school with who went, no, 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 you were so popular and everyone liked you. And it was like, that's not how it felt. <laughs> And I think of all the parts of depression as this kind of huge cloud, loneliness is such a difficult one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult to... even. Yeah, but that's, it's different from being alone. Yeah. You know? And sometimes I'm, I'm the most relieved when I'm by myself, where I just don't have to... Like, but, but then um, 
linking to what I was just saying was just that I think that maybe when I started doing stand-up again, uh, which was after I finished filming in uh, March, April, April, and then I started writing this show, and um, <clears throat> I've just got one of those Edinburgh throats at the moment. Um, when I started doing stand-up again, I instantly felt like, oh, hang on a minute, and then and and then I was just like. Maybe I, maybe I haven't been depressed for a year and a half. Maybe I just haven't been working, yeah. <laughs> right? And I love because yeah. I, I love I love working so much. But I love working because it means that I'm not at my on my own with my own thoughts. Um, but there's the loneliness of kind of like I've just moved. I live in a flat by myself, um, and um, uh, and I love I love living by myself. But if I didn't have the gigs to get out. For I wouldn't, I wouldn't get even get up. You know, I just kind of like the days just wash over me, and so I really like the um, the schedule. It's weird because it's kind of like it's not just oh I've got an appointment that I can cancel. It's like you have to be there to do your gig, and you have to go and do it, and because um, there's people that are waiting to see you, and um, and I really love that kind of like. I don't ever want to go to the gig, but when I get there, I love it. And so, yeah, it's just one of those things where I would... Hmm. When I'm alone, I'm not that lonely, but when I'm with other people, I tend to be... That's when, that's what brings it out, because you realise that, you know, it's almost impossible sometimes. There's a few very amazing people that I know that, um, that I connect with and that I, uh, that, you know, that I don't think about, you know being alone and stuff like that but then um but then a lot of the time you're with people and you yeah you kind of like it's difficult isn't it? i think um, <laughs> no it's it not, is it's not very it's not very articulate but no uh, one of the one of the difficulties i've got is that my i love stand-up and i love the fringe when i did my first ever gig in 2003 four something like that it was uh, one of those revelatory, you know, road to Damascus moments, five minutes at the Stand Comedy Club. It was utter shit. Mm. I mean, it was just shit. Mm. But I I felt incredible. Because yeah. I'd wanted to do stand-up for so many years, and I finally did it. And the problem is I still love, sta- I still love the stand-up, and I love doing stand-up. And, but my, my wife quite correctly says that it is often not good for me. So the fringe is not good for me. What part of it is not good for you? The uh, feeling like a failure. You know, even in 2012 when I had my most successful year, I think even critically successful year, I've always, since then, I've always sold out. So in terms of ticket sales, I sell out, people laugh, but I never feel, I feel like I'm back at school again. Everything in my life is really related to my time at school. There's no question. That's where the, whatever damage was done to my cortex, it mm. was school. And I feel like I'm back at school again. And I think I just turn into somebody, I turn into somebody who I don't think is a very healthy person. Because I then start to think of, I compare myself to people. It's impossible not to. And I don't think that's a... So last year when the lovely Felicity Ward was nominated, I wasn't here. Delighted for her. Genuinely delighted for her. I genuinely think, being honest, every time I was here and doing a show and lists were announced, I would sit and go, fuck's sake. 
What do I have to do? But actually, it's not important. Is there swearing? Yes, of course. Oh, fucking hell. I've been, I've yeah. been being polite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. OK. Yeah. So, yeah, now, now we're going to get the reality. Fuck oh, shit, bollocks. <laughs> so that's the thing. I think it turns me... And then I think I'm not at things. People don't invite me to things. But then I don't want to go to the things. I like to sit at home and watch a box set and listen to podcasts. So I'm not a social human being. Sure, I, I, there's, there's a thing though, isn't there? It's very weird that we talk about being lonely and all of that and we have picked a job that requires just 100% self-reliance and standing up on stage in front of a room full of people that might potentially hate you and trying to win. You know, it's a lonely job. Yeah. And, you know, um, so, so there's that. What I would also say is at the beginning of your career as a stand-up comedian... It's very supportive. You know, you you, know, you go and see your friends, they come and see you. It's kind of like, you know. And one of the things that I love most is when I come out on stage and I see other comedians in the audience. And the further you go through your career, the less that happens. Until eventually, you're basically... Comedians don't come and see you anymore. Yeah. Because they're all doing their own thing, you know. Um, and uh, and it's just... Like, it's, uh, so, so there's kind of like a change there where... You're kind of like, oh, I'm not flavour of the month and this is actually just my job now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's not the, 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 the newness of it has worn off. And you kind of like... And it, you, you may never get that special thing back again, but it gets replaced by something else, which is the fact that you get to say that your job is being a stand-up comedian. Or whatever absolutely. your job is. No, absolutely, you know? yeah. So, <clears throat> so there's that as well. But then because you kind of like see less familiar faces in the audience, you feel like it's a personal thing. And I think you just can't do that. Uh, but then also the thing that's like specifically about this year and for me is that I'm doing two shows. I'm doing my stand-up show at 5.40 and then I do my musical at 9.45. The stand-up show is just me being very nervous in a tiny little dressing room wearing spangly short shorts uh, and tube socks waiting to go on wearing a cape and a feather butt and do you know what I mean and I'm backstage and I'm just I'm just an absolute wreck and then I come out and I do my show and uh, the show is not I wouldn't say <coughs> I'd say it's like 80%, 85% in my head. And then there's a 15% margin for error where I'll forget a bit or um, I'll do it in the wrong order or something like that. Uh, and I quite like the looseness of it, but also I am waiting for it to kick in so that I can kind of like not have to worry about it. And then so, so I have that experience and then I wait around for two hours, I have a drink and then, uh, and then I go and meet the cast for my musical. And there's five of us, and then uh, sixth uh, being uh, Aaron, my tech, who does both shows. And I've only met him recently. And um, I've never worked with um, these comedians before, but I'm working with Rob Kemp. Oh, I've worked with Suze Kempner before, Jenny Bede, uh, Katie Pritchards, me, and then Aaron. So there's six of us. And it's just... It's what, it's the, I think it's the best... One of the best Edinburgh experiences I've ever had. And I've been coming up since 1997. And last, I think, including last year, there's only three years that I've not come up. So it's kind of like, it was one of the best experiences because you, I do my show and I get all of that. Oh, I, I did this. And then I get to share this experience with five other people. And, um, 
and we've all become friends and you know we'll do the show and it's so nice because sort of like the, sometimes the audience will be a bit quiet and it's a comedy but sometimes the audience <laughs> will be a bit quiet and they're a bit confused and all of that they clap in between each each song but the, it's a weird show and um, and sometimes they'll really get it but it doesn't matter because I was in a double act with Paul F. Taylor uh, uh, when I started and um, and we you know if you dying on your own and dying on stage with someone else are two completely different things you get to talk about it in the car on the way home it's a shared experience you laugh about it it's fine when you get the train home by yourself and you've just died on your ass it's just so miserable and we we haven't died in our musical but we I mean it's just fun and then we go out afterwards we have like maybe two or three drinks we play cards and then I go home and I'm in I'm at home by 1.30 in the morning and in the old days I'd be out until seven o'clock in the morning I'd get four hours sleep I'd crawl into my venue I'd do my show you know the show wouldn't ever be affected by it but I was kind of like I was really hard on myself you know and this year it's just so civilized and also I'm with these I see my friends, my new friends. I see my friends every day. We go off and do something together afterwards. It's sort of like low-key. Not hanging around with other comedians, not talking about all our shows, just sort of like being silly, making each other laugh, and we just go home. And um, and I think that having that routine has really sort of like been good for me mentally, where I don't have to be the loudest person in the room and I don't have to be kind of like the biggest show off and I don't have to do any of those things. I can just sort of like sit there and enjoy the company of other people, which as a comedian is something that's kind of like a difficult thing mm. to kind of like, oh, I enjoy other people yeah. being funny. Do you know what I mean? And it's kind of, um, yeah, I'm just, I, 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 in terms of that, I think this is the happiest I've ever been in Edinburgh. Um, which is weird because my show is very... <laughs> my my solo show is very kind of like, you know, talks about... I, I really hate the term mental health because I think it's such a buzzword. But it's, uh, it's because people use the term mental health though because of they don't know what to say. So they're so afraid of upsetting anyone by saying you've got depression. I don't have depression actually. What I've got is this. So they're so afraid of upsetting anyone by mislabeling somebody mm. that they use mental health as this umbrella, which is inappropriate. Because I, I hate it when people say, you're mentally ill. I hate it when people say that. Sure. Because I don't think I'm mentally ill. I think I've got uh, depression and anxiety and various things. that I'm not ill. I'm not ill because to say that I'm ill means that I'm not... I'm, I'm constantly sick if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. Rather than handling it, I, in fact, celebrate my depression at times. I think it makes me a different, unique, wonderful, morose human being, like like Batman. I'm essentially Batman, <laughs> really, is what I'm saying. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you say I... 2012 was the revelatory year for me at the Fringe because it's the first time I did a show where I talked about things that were important to me. And it really was like... I've never talked so much and so honestly in my life than I did on stage at the Fringe. Because my family are beautiful and lovely, but we never talked about how we were feeling about things. And you certainly didn't go to therapy. You're saying, like me, you were depressed, sad, lonely as a child. Did you ever talk to anyone or was it stand-up? Was the first time you really expressed how you were feeling? Um... I wrote about it in plays and stuff before, you know, so my first, so like I said, 2001, I wrote sketches and stuff. And so that was all fairly dark and depressing and morbid. But I think that it was also mining my experiences for jokes, you know, whereas opposed to now, I suppose the big change is that um, I'm not so worried about the jokes. The jokes come. I'm just literally just talking very kind of like... It's not like gag, gag, gag. Oh, this is a routine about, you know, me being depressed. It's kind of like I talk about me being depressed and through just talking about it, that's where the... Maybe that's what the change is. It's not so gag-orientated and that I'm just making jokes that are about my experiences with depression, but it's actually me talking about depression and humour comes out of that. Um, um, have I ever talked about depression? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I did. I mean, it's, it's weird. I got bullied so much at school, and it wasn't um, it wasn't physical stuff. It was just mental abuse. And so I ended up getting um, I got diagnosed with ME, and um, and then I would sort of like and I can't. I, I you know, doctor said that I had ME, and I don't know whether I really did have ME or whether it was just a convenient way of being able to not have to go to school whenever I wanted. Like, I can't, when looking back and remembering it, and I just remember that school was absolutely miserable. It was, you know, it's fucking miserable. And, um, you know, I dread, I dread it at the weekends. I'd try and, you know, throw myself down hills and break my leg to get out of, you know... <laughs> At the National Trust, uh, <laughs> at National Trust gardens and stuff, and um... I, I used to think, could I put my fist through that window and hurt myself? Yeah, right. Not not badly enough to die at that point. No, but yeah. could I hurt myself sufficiently that I wouldn't need to go into school? Yeah, I'd try and sort of, um, you know, when I was very little, I'd try and you know, strangle myself and stuff like that. I really just, I was so unhappy. Um, I think you know, and it's and it's and it's no one's fault, but I just I yeah I just really hated school like so much, and that's the thing, and so I'd I'd, I'd miss it, which would make it worse, because I'd get in, and then not only did you were you not having shared experiences with all the other kids. But you were getting moved down in class because you couldn't learn, you hadn't been learning French and maths and all of that stuff, and. Um, uh, and then you were getting special treatment to help you catch up with other people. It was only until about year 11 that I started making, you know, uh, friends in the art department and uh, in, in art lessons and art and drama and all the creative stuff. 
but I just yeah um, and so so yeah got diagnosed with ME and then um, uh, and then I've been for like therapy and stuff and I, but the, that's the thing I went I went to <coughs> get um, get therapy for, through the NHS uh, maybe like 12 years ago I went to the doctor and I'd got to a point back then where I said that I can't really go on at the moment um, I can't I'm not functioning and all of this stuff and went to the doctor and talked about it and then nothing ever came of it they said you know we'll try and get you therapy and nothing ever came of it I never heard from them since. and then I went in with an unrelated you know skin <laughs> disorder like two years later and they said it says here that you came in to try and get therapy what happened and I said I never heard anything back and they were like oh we're really sorry about that how does that make you feel and I said well to be honest I could have killed myself in that amount of time and no one would have known or yeah. cared you know? yeah um, and uh, and then I did end up getting therapy and then you know did it did it help you when you I mean what type of therapy did you it was have? me sitting in a room with someone that kept looking at a clock and I was and to be honest I didn't think that that worked for right. me and then years later a friend of mine um uh, recommended the therapist and I started seeing her and um, uh, that was when I was going through like, a, a breakup a couple of years ago and it wasn't because of the breakup but it was kind of like it did hit a point where it was just like oh god everything is falling apart now and I need to do something so I'd go so I so I started seeing this therapist and she was great um, but I don't think we were an exact fit. So I think that, you know, if anyone's listening here and they're, like, worried about getting therapy or they're worried about looking for themselves, it can be kind of like um, a trial and error thing. Yeah, it's... Um, I've had appalling therapists who made me feel worse. Mm. And I've had very good therapists. The, I think that the important thing is that I was able to pay to try. I think the difficulty is, for me... People have said to me all the time, oh, you've written a book about mental... Everything's better now, though, isn't it? Everything's better, because people are talking about it. Mm. My point is always, if you go to your doctor now and say, I think I might kill myself, I need therapy, you still have to wait ages to see it. If you can't afford to pay privately... So it's all very well as all fessing up to being anxious, but they're cutting NHS funding. So, you know, that's the concern. This year, I was on on a waiting list... Uh, from um, like last October till April and then I just uh, oh no it would have been like eventually I think two months ago I got to a point where I was not working uh, you know I was getting to my previews and doing my previews even while I've been writing the show it's not been like I you know part of what I say on stage is that I thought that by the time I got to Edinburgh I'd be all fixed you know, oh, I'll be ready to write a show. This show's about mental health. My show's called Phoenix from the Flames. My show is about me coming back to stand-up and coming back to uh, Edinburgh and coming back to being like, yeah, I'm back. I'm, my, my brain is working again and all this. And the whole process of writing the show has been absolutely... I've said I've, I'm, I'm so open on stage. I feel like I could burst into tears at any point. Um, while I'm talking about the stuff that I'm talking, and it's not a sad show. I think it's actually a really funny show, and I'm and I'm not. But I just feel like it takes so much out of me to talk about this stuff on stage. Sometimes it's not an hour of it either. There's like, like a middle section where I'm just really honest about. Does it, it help you getting to that point? So when you're getting to that point in the show where you're feeling that, 
because you're being honest and you're on stage and you're expressing yourself about how you feel does is that a cathartic thing is that a helpful thing are you in some way because sometimes when I do things I'm vaguely self-harming because I know I don't like doing it I so think, what is it you're doing I think that I'm I'm trying to um, I'm trying to talk openly and honestly about how I feel I'm trying to always I, I know that a lot of my fans um, uh, suffer from depression um, and uh, n- n- not because of me right? <laughs> I just want to it sounds is it that, that's the one defining factor that's the one connecting factor depression and Nick Hill yeah like, oh, we weren't depressed before we came to see you actually Nick um, <laughs> But um, but and and, and um, because I talk openly on stage about and I and I know and, and this is the thing I all, I've always done it because I know because I've had fans come up to me for years after gigs and ask me for advice and it's the thing it's just like I can't give you advice I'm on stage if you take anything that's useful that you can apply to your life or if or it's just even some comfort in in coming to watch me that's my job. I can't do one-on-one therapy sessions with people after after the shows, and yeah. I think that's part of the reason why I took a break as well was because I felt like it was so. I mean, it 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 took so much out of me to do that and to leave the house with all of my problems, go on stage, talk about it, and then afterwards try and sort out other people's problems and I'm a nice person and I and, you know and I and I want to be there for people but in actual fact um, that's not my job and also I if I was to say anything that sort of uh, they took the wrong way and then they did something that harmed themselves or anything like that I wouldn't I, I, I it's unfair to expect me to take on that responsibility um, so it's it was just yeah I just found I found it all very um, not scary, but like very, um, I was very conscious of it, and I, was, I found it very draining. And um, and so this show is kind of like I do know that there is amongst people specifically that follow me, that are fans of me. I know that there is kind of like some sort of need for for you know to talk about this amongst some people. And so I'm right. I've written a show for um, for for myself and to talk about it, but I've also written it because I think that it will be a comfort to some of my fans and and in a way that I won't be able to sort of like s- spend hours and hours with people after their gig mm-hmm. and talk the, my way through their history of mental health issues, but if I can go on stage and talk about my mental health issues in a matter-of-fact way, I'm not trying to be emotional about it either, I'm just literally trying to say this is a matter-of-fact thing. Then um, yeah, then I think hopefully that they'll get so that people will get something out of it, and it will encourage them to talk about it. Because because this is the first time I've ever talked about the voices in my head that tell me to do bad things. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think I've, I've talked about it in front of my parents. I haven't talked about it, and I'm you know have a really amazing relationship with my parents. And so I am finding it really difficult because these are the deepest, darkest thoughts in my head. I've got Waldorf and Statler. Right. <laughs> who say, you're shit. That's my voices. They're the Muppets who just constantly tell me, 
What do you think of it so far? Rubbish. Right. It's my voices. Yeah. I just have um, voices in my head. Uh, not voices in my head. But I got to a point last year where I was so depressed and I was and there was no way out. And I just... Uh, th- th- again, this is all in my show. But it's like... I have a voice in my head that tells me to kill myself all, all the time and it'll be 30, 40, 50 times a day and I got to a point last November where I developed a tick where I was trying to shake it out of my head every time it would pop into my head and I was just, I don't think I am going to kill myself, right? But there's a voice in my head that is constantly telling me to do it and it would just be like I'd be like pottering around the house and then I would just say out loud oh I think I'm going to kill myself and then but I'd just say it out loud I think I'm going to kill myself and then I'd go uh, and I'd catch myself doing it I'd go uh, and then I could see it coming and every time it was coming I'd sort of like shake my head and I'd try and get the thought out and then it just became this thing where it was so dark I was in such a dark bad place yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know what to do. And I also have the, the, you know, I'm a piece of shit and I hate myself and all of that stuff. You know, I do have those voices, but um, um, and it's, but that's the thing. Is I'm not. Yeah. Rationally, I'm not. I know I'm a nice person. I know I'm really good to people. Um, I, I look after people. You know, but I think I'm easily disappointed uh, with other people, and I have kind of like defences. Or self-preservation, where, you know, if someone upsets me, or someone has kind of like uh, uh, done something that's made me feel particularly shit about myself, I will sort of like put up barriers to sort of prevent them from getting into my life. Um, but then again, if somebody turns around and calls me a cunt, then I will absolutely be on their side and go, yeah, yeah, you're right. I've always <laughs> thought that, and you're the expert, actually, because you can see me from the outside. What are the most difficult parts, though, about being a, a rational person? I'm a hugely rational person. Hugely rational person. Pride myself on that. I used to be a lawyer. I'm Scottish. I'm very rational. But I'm also the most illogical person in the entire world. And the thing that I constantly is my... The therapist who did work for me kept talking about empirical evidence, right? She would say, what's the empirical evidence for your paranoia, for your thoughts? And I try, I, I try and stick to that of, is there any evidence for the illogical thoughts in my head? And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't work in terms of how I feel about myself because I am such a logical person but there's such an irrational part of my brain, such an illogical part of my brain which lets the thoughts through which then people don't believe. Some people don't even believe I've got depression and anxiety because when they see me or I do stand up and meet me, they go, no, but you, you can't. Yeah, but that's the thing. People don't know the difference between happy and sad and depression and and also professionalism, you know. <laughs> yes. But, you know, you can... I'm depressed, but the, my job is what gets me out of bed, literally, yeah. you know. You know, um... And uh, and then it, it kind of like gives me kind of like an energy boost being on stage and and, and when I'm on stage and just after I've been on stage and when I'm you know um, just sort of like get to the evening I think well I can't believe I wasted another day not being able to get out of bed and do anything but 
Yeah, I also think that it's just specifically comedy. I've fallen out with a few comedians over the years, and I just think that it's one of those things where I've I I was really scared about coming back to stand up because I just felt like everybody hated me. I felt like all the comedians hated me. Nobody. Uh, everyone was glad that I, I wasn't around, and regardless of the fact that they probably almost definitely weren't even thinking about me in the first place. But I just felt like, I felt really um, just like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to start doing Edinburgh, and maybe I don't even have any friends in Edinburgh anymore. And so I was very sort of nervous about that. Um, and then I started doing it, and then I realised, oh, I've got loads of friends in Edinburgh. And every time I walk down the road, I bump into someone that I love, or someone, you know, that I love, you know. Um, like, dear friends, and you lose people along the way. Um, but I also think that I am, uh, and I don't mind being called mentally ill, I am mentally ill. Um, and I 100% take, uh, acknowledge the fact that I am mentally ill. Um, and and I can feel bad and I can hurt people and I can but I also have capacity to do the opposite and just yeah. to, and to really help people and that's me that's just me and then when you look at the comedy industry it is an unsanctioned group of people that have all gone out and they're all from different backgrounds and we're all mentally ill to a certain point and you know you can't be responsible for everyone else's mental illness. No. You can only be responsible for your own mm-hmm. mental illness. And um, and I guess that's sort of what my show's about as well. But it's just kind of like... Um, oh, I'm really nailing this show. Um, but, but do you know what I mean? You can't be responsible for other people, so it's just kind of like you go... You can have feedback and everything like that, but if I was to believe... All of the opinions of someone else with mental health issues that were just basically projecting onto me. I had a conversation last year with someone and they just sat down and they completely uh, did a character assassination on me and they deconstructed and nothing that they said rang true, right, about me. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like the, they were describing themselves, but they were projecting it all onto me. And by the end of it, you know. I was, I was suicidal and I was and, and it took me you know I was I was fine I thought I was doing really well I'd spent a year going to the gym eating sensibly cutting down on the amount I drink uh, working every day and kind of like writing stuff and by the end of this kind of like it was like a one hour chat I was completely deconstructed by it by them. and and then you just like yeah, um, and I was I was worse than than when I started and then you just like go but hang on a minute these are things that they are that they are trying to address in yes. themselves and I just think that you can kind of like be in a toxic environment and you need to take yourself out every so yeah. often I'm glad you're here Nick I think you're amazing that's why I wrote so many scenes of sexual tension between us I did enjoy those you did yeah. I still have a dream that one day we will get some form of sitcom where I do play your wife because I believe that we are a, <laughs> a believable couple who everyone would think they're just they're just banging all the time look at them and I'm only six foot you're only six well, I'm not six foot seven. it's perfect it's yeah. perfect um, at the end of this podcast um, I always ask my guests just to have the final words so you can say whatever you want, Nick. Um, oh, just, uh, I'm having a lovely time. I yeah. hope it lasts. So do I. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, 
Just thank you very much for having me. Oh. Well, it's a lovely day. Yeah, it is. It's gonna. There's, there's a storm coming. You can feel it. I can feel it. I've got a scar at the back of my leg, and I can feel the storm coming. But it'd, it'd be terrible if I got hit by a bus after this. <laughs> Uh, it's my final destination. That's the, that's the very last thing I ever said. There's a storm coming. I sounded like fucking Tiny Tim. It was a lovely day. <laughs> <laughs> fucking. Yeah. Um, uh, for people who. Where can they find. Do you have a website or anything like that? I've got for a website www.nickhelm.co.uk or something yeah. like that yeah for for future th- if your albums and stuff they'll find oh, information yeah, about that. that oh follow me on twitter at the nick helm the nick helm uh, and instagram which i prefer i find people are much nicer on instagram you just put a picture i've just put a picture of some pants up or, you know i've just washed my pants put a picture of some pants on 55 people liked it in 10 minutes before i got here and it's just people liking stuff yeah. whereas the other one on Twitter would be like, "Is these your pants, you yeah. prick?" <laughs> yeah, nice to see you've got enough money to buy pants. Yeah. Some people don't have any money anymore. That's why I don't go on Twitter. Every time you go on Twitter and say anything, people always say to me, "Oh, I'm so glad you can afford Angel Delight, Susan." Some people can't, and you yeah. go, "Just let me have my sodding Angel Delight." Yeah. Thanks, Nick Helm. I fancy you. Oh. Thank you for listening to Mrs Brightside. If you like the show, why not subscribe? We're available everywhere you can download podcasts. And if you've already subscribed, why not tell a friend? Next week, I'll be talking to... Kitty Pritchard-McLean. So they're like, what do you think people would shout out about? You always have a comeback to that. And I remember I was like, oh, I always think I'll probably get, like, sexual heckles. And it was like, yeah, I mentioned the other day that I had written all these things, comebacks to things, and it just never happened. And then I started doing a bit of material about, like, I'd written all these comebacks to sexual heckles, but I'd never got any. And then one man was like, show us your tits. (laughs) I was trying to be really helpful about it. Susan Kalman's Mrs Brightside is hosted, appropriately enough, by me. Susan Kalman. The producer is Benjamin Sutton and is a BBC Studios production for ACAST. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.